Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines of the mainstream news. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, if you have 12 Americans being fed a diet of untruth, that's 12 too many. So says John Watson, an American University journalism professor who specializes in ethics and media law. He was talking about One America News, or OAN, that network and their audience, which has been told, among other things, that Donald Trump really won the 2020 election and that chemical cocktails are a better health response to COVID-19 than government-authorized vaccines. We'll talk about how we got here with Bobby Lewis, researcher and editorial writer from Media Matters for America. Also on the show, thousands of people are out in the street this week calling on lawmakers to not just acknowledge that climate change is happening, but to do something about it. Media have a role to play here, and it has to go beyond noting that protesters spray-painted a statue of Andrew Jackson. What about the work of saving the planet and facing up to the forces that are calling themselves harmed by our attempt to move against climate disruption. We'll talk about people versus fossil fuels with Gene Sue from the Center for Biological Diversity. All of that's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you by the Media Watch Group FAIR. Media sometimes say that we are dawdling on climate change, that we need to take it more seriously. That language is worse than lazy. It obscures the fact that many people are shouting at the top of their voices about making the changes today needed to avert further climate disaster. And some others are resisting and pretending and indeed profiting from the inaction. Just as we aren't all affected the same way by floods and fires, heat waves and hurricanes, the fight for action on climate is also about race and class and power. It's still pretty simple, though, as reflected in the name given to the five-day mobilization of indigenous, faith-based, and advocacy groups currently going on in Washington, D.C., People versus Fossil Fuels. Hundreds of people have been arrested in the protests, which will wrap up Friday with a march from the White House to Congress. Our next guest is part of this mobilization. Jean Sue is director of the Energy Justice Program and senior attorney at the Center for Biological Diversity. She joins us now by phone from D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Jean Sue. Great. Thanks for having me, Janine. Well, this week's actions are something more than sounding an alarm about climate disruption. There's an urgency and there are concrete demands. And I would say these are things the White House can do without Mitch McConnell. Isn't that right? Correct. Without Joe Manchin as well. Yeah, right, right. So what are the demands and what is the spirit of this mobilization? 
So as you said, it is really obvious what the spirit of the mobilization is. It's a real call for anyone in power to listen and heed the demands of people who all across the United States and the world are literally suffering, physically being harmed by the climate emergency. What was really compelling in the past, I don't know, decades, what it feels like of being, you know, in the COVID pandemic is the lumbering presence of the climate crisis on our everyday lives, whether you are in Oregon facing the heat domes out there or the horrific fatal hurricanes sweeping everywhere from Puerto Rico to the New England to the Southeast. People right now are absolutely feeling the climate emergency in ways that I think a lot of folks did not comprehend before and that a lot of folks in the global south absolutely have felt for decades. So this is a call right now to stop the delay, stop the BS, and act, seriously act on real bold climate initiatives that can both flash our fossil fuel and greenhouse gas emissions, but also address the really deeply hurtful and racial components of our energy system that have led to a racist electricity system that we have today. Well, let me ask you, because these actions are targeted to some degree at the White House, which is something in particular, and there's a sense of of betrayal almost. So I, I, I want to ask you, what did candidate Joe Biden say that President Joe Biden has not done? And what's the concern there? Yeah, so candidate Biden made some pretty important statements about the climate, about how it is a crisis that needs to be dealt with, and generally about addressing certain aspects of fossil fuel production. And certainly in his initial speeches as a president, really emphasizing this idea of a renewable future that generated an amazing amount of good paying union green jobs. I I think that is the overall push that the Biden administration has put forth. But in the eight months that Biden has been in power. We haven't seen much actually getting done on the ground on this. For instance, he absolutely has the power right now. He and Secretary Hollande have the absolute power to deny and stop the fossil fuel leasing program in this country. People will be shocked to know that one-fourth of our fossil fuel emissions in the United States is generated from public lands that we all own together. And those are being drilled and fracked and extracted for fossil fuels to profit oil and gas companies and utility companies in this country against the public interest and the planet. So one of the very initial things and simplest things that Joe Biden can do is put a halt to our fossil fuel lease sales and permits. He has not done that yet. With a stroke of a pen, he and Secretary Hollande could end that. They could, with a stroke of the pen, end line three, which so many people here, hundreds of indigenous leaders are here on the street demanding those two things. Separately, One of the other crucial fossil fuel moves that the Biden administration can do 
is reinstate the crude oil export ban. So in 2015, under the Obama administration, the Senate actually overturned a decades-long embargo, essentially, on the export of crude oil. But in a stunning turn of events, that ban was lifted, and that has really caused the huge fracking shale boom that we have seen in this country. And with that, the horrific amounts of pollution and harm that have come to communities that live in fracking states. So he can absolutely, single-handedly, the Congress gave him the ability to reinstate that crude oil export ban. That is totally within the presidential powers, and he absolutely has the authority to do it, and we are urging him to do so this week. Well, I want to direct people to peopleversusfossilfuels.org, where you can get more detail on the demands of this mobilization. Well, nobody's looking to him for cutting-edge criticism, but Prince Charles just recently said that he understands why climate activists take to the street to demand action, but he said he's calling for more constructive rather than destructive methods. And he's talking about protesters blocking streets. Besides the patrician nature of all of this, activism around climate actually works, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen that it works with Keystone XL. We have seen political movement shift because people are here participating in a democracy to make our voices heard. This is still a democracy. I know under the Trump administration, we're all wondering whether it is, but it is now. And especially for the Biden election, droves of our black communities rolled out to support Joe Biden and elect him. He actually has to fulfill the promises to environmental justice communities, and he is not. And it is absolutely incumbent on the administration to listen to the people who actually voted them in. Black communities right now are suffering from poisonous gases and air pollution coming out of dirty oil and gas facilities. The president If he were to truly fulfill his commitments to his voter base, he would stop the pollution and actually get us on the transition that we need to 100 percent renewable energy. You know, I I think like one of the pieces that, you know, Prince Charles can um, elaborate on is this idea of having a constructive solution. The Biden administration right now actually has powers like the Defense Production Act at its fingertips. The Defense Production Act is a wartime footing statute that has been mobilized during wartime to basically revolutionize private industry to deal with the emergency at hand. Right now, it is very obvious that the climate is an emergency, and the president actually has the ability to use the Defense Production Act to jumpstart our renewable energy industry in a way that it is lackluster right now. He has the ability to actually coordinate industry to get our solar panels, our transmission lines, and all of our clean energy infrastructure in line to be built. He also has the ability to leverage financial pockets that the administration has 
to give loan guarantees and direct grants so that communities, especially communities of color who have been historically poisoned by our racist energy system, can have access to community solar and rooftop solar and be climate resilient with batteries and microgrids. These are not only issues of climate, but they are sincerely issues of racial justice in this country. And if we really want to tackle both, which we absolutely have to, we can't solely be looking at decarbonization. We have to be looking at solutions that respect and honor and restore and build justice in our communities that have been so disproportionately harmed by our fossil fuel system. Yes, absolutely. The putting forward of a positive vision is part of the role that I think journalists could play. And I just want to ask you, finally, media have generally stopped giving serious platform to climate change deniers. They've even begun to mention climate disruption in their coverage of extreme weather events. But keep it in the ground. Stop burning fossil fuels is still presented as one view among others. And we're very aware of how powerful the fossil fuel industry is, how captured many regulators are, how influenced lawmakers are. But, you know, media have a role here. And yet when it comes to change, when it comes to policy, it seems to become this beltway partisan. You mentioned Joe Manchin. You know, it becomes this story like it's horse trading over a sales tax or something. And so I just want to ask you finally, what role would you like journalists to play in this fight? Is there anything you'd like to see more or less of? Absolutely. I think journalists should cover the facts. And the facts that we are dealing with is that we have a ticking time bomb on our hands. The IPCC has been very clear that we have until 2030 to make extreme shifts away from fossil fuels toward renewable energy. People looking at those facts will see science very plain and clear. Yet, for some reason, media and politicians will obscure the facts and say, that's not feasible. We can't do it. Let's do a, another slower walk type of approach. And if you look at the facts and the science, we don't have that option if we truly are going to try to beat this climate crisis and really respect in a lot of ways the rest of the planet who has suffered from what has happened in the United States and other Western countries who have been the biggest emitters over time. It's fascinating to see how people believe that climate activists are radical when, in fact, climate advocates are actually just looking and following the science. And I think that's absolutely something that needs to be clear and front of mind in terms of journalists who are here to report the facts. I think another thing that journalists can absolutely do is really reveal and go deep into the stories that make the climate crisis so devastating. And especially in the United States, the stories are so abundant because they are really wrapped up in Jim Crow laws and in racial injustices that at the same time are ravaging the country and have done so since the beginning of slavery in this country. If you look at places like North Carolina or different parts of the Southeast, you'll see communities of color, Black families, Brown families, really ravaged by an electricity system that is choking them and giving their kids asthma and eventually cancer. 
you will see that they are also being ravaged at the same time by horrific hurricanes that cut off electricity and access to life-saving medicines all in the same go. And if they just had access to rooftop solar, to batteries, to microgrids, they actually would essentially end the need for that fossil fuel plant three miles away from them, as well as have the access to clean and affordable and renewable energy that won't be cut off when a climate disaster hits them. These are stories, one in the same, of the same communities that receive the harm, but they should also be the same communities that are prioritized in terms of a renewable energy future. And I think like those beautiful stories that address both the climate crisis and racial injustice together, create a story of potential restorative justice on both the climate and racial and social fronts. I would really encourage our journalists to go after those types of stories and stop the inside the beltway nonsense where Joe Manchin and the Biden administration and Congress right now are considering implementing a, quote, clean electricity payment program that would allow for gas to perpetuate and continue to poison communities across the state. We've been speaking with Jean Sue of the Center for Biological Diversity. They're online at biologicaldiversity.org. You can also check out peoplevsfossilfuels.org. Jean Sue, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me, Janine. Corporate owners tend to be conservative, we know. We know they support causes and projects, including media outlets, that further their goals. CBS and Viacom head Sumner Redstone told Time magazine back in 2004, quote, I do believe that a Republican administration is better for media companies than a Democratic one, close quote. But the relationship between AT&T and far-right network One America News is different. As revealed in a blockbuster Reuters report by John Schiffman, the inspiration for the network that now espouses the notion that Donald Trump won the 2020 election, among other things, came directly from AT&T executives. They told us they wanted a conservative network. OAN founder Robert Herring stated in a deposition Reuters saw, When they said that, I jumped to it and built one. Unpeeling how that happened and why we don't know that's how it happened and how it's sustained, all of that is a lesson in the differences between corporate news media and journalism as well as the fallacy that because something is on your TV, that means that it's passed some sort of public interest, public integrity test. Our next guest has been tracking OAN for some time. Bobby Lewis is editorial writer and researcher for the group Media Matters. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Bobby Lewis. Hi, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Well, the revelation is the deal, you know, between AT&T and OAN. But first, for those listeners who have maintained a blissful ignorance of uh, (laughs) OAN, 
Can you just first give us a sense of the flavor, if you will, of this network? What's the kind of content that one can expect when they turn on OAN? I think a good way to put it is a lot of people are familiar with, say, Fox News that may not be familiar with OAN. And OAN feels very similar but very different from Fox. (laughs) Obviously, as two conservative news networks, they cover similar topics from similar viewpoints. But OAN seems more eager to, to proudly embrace the cringiest, most obviously nonsense positions that, especially in the um, latter years of the Trump era, Fox decided to quietly ignore. One big example of this is the MyPillow CEO, Mike Lindell. He's been on a whole thing for months about how the election was stolen from Trump. And he has been very angry with Fox News that they won't give him any time of day. OAN, however, has broadcast hours upon hours of his different events and documentaries and cyber symposiums. I think a good way to think of OAN is kind of like Fox, but more out there, more daring with the lies that it will assert its truth. What do we learn from this Reuters story about the relationship between OAN and AT&T, which is this very sort of bread and butter institution, as folks might think about it? Besides phone and Internet, AT&T also owns Warner Media, which means HBO and CNN, among others, as well as DirecTV. Tell the story. What is the revelation about the relationship between OAN and AT&T? The big revelation is really the one you started with, that AT&T played an integral role in OAN's very founding. There isn't all that much reporting on One American News itself out there. There's been more of it in the recent months. But it had been known for a while that the channel founder, Robert Herring, essentially founded it to make money. He's never been particularly quiet about that aspect. But the Reuters article revealing that the spark of inspiration for OAN and its right-wing bend came from a meeting with AT&T executives. In a sense, it basically shows that AT&T asked for this. Obviously, the media giant probably doesn't assert control over like day-to-day and hour-to-hour operations at OAN, but they asked for a conservative news channel in the competitive market that exists. A conservative news channel is going to come out looking a lot like One American News. There were also some good details in that Reuters report that you could get a feel that something like that was true, but we didn't exactly know, for instance, that as recently as 2020, AT&T provided about 90% of OAN's revenues, presumably through all the carrier fees with DirecTV and, to a lesser extent, Ubers. That was another huge thing to learn. It really cements how involved AT&T is with the history and the continued existence of this network, even though the uh, company is consistently trying to distance itself from OAN. Well, we know this at least in part due to an unlawful firing lawsuit. A jury found that OAN had wrongly fired a producer, 
for filing a racial complaint. And then when it got to punitive damages, then OAN's financial condition came to light. And that's kind of the way that this became clear, which, as you say, as much as we're to understand, 90% of that channel's revenue comes from AT&T-owned platforms. And the person said in court, without the deal with DirecTV, which AT&T owns, OAN's network value would be zero. So in other words, it's not a thing where... You know, we're used to hearing conservative companies want to support certain kinds of entities, but this is a much more formative relationship. It sort of sounds as though without AT&T, OAN might not be there. Exactly. Yeah. For me, that was the overall takeaway of the first part of the Reuters report is that, like you said, like OAN would not and could not exist without AT&T's blessing. We already knew that AT&T owned OAN's biggest carrier, DirecTV, and we already knew that that generated enough revenue for the network to at least stay alive. But learning just how ingrained AT&T was and is with how OAN was created and how OAN continues to exist, as you described it at the top of the show, it really is a blockbuster. Well, people can't help but think that ideas are on their TV because those ideas are popular among actual people. But you and I are media critics because we recognize that media can shape thought and not just reflect it, and that they can create communities around particular thoughts. And so I guess what makes me so mad and sad about this story is that we have OAN that is telling hateful yahoos that they're onto something, that there's so many of them. There's so many of them that there's a whole network that will create it. So I guess I, I can you talk a bit about what is the harm done? Like folks are like, okay, you know, folks have certain points of view and they pay people to create a network to put out those points of view. What is troubling? What's problematic about it for you? What's problematic about that whole dynamic for me, the most problematic part at least, is that it's so all or nothing with whatever this in-group believes, like the election was stolen from Trump, versus whatever the out-group believes, no, it wasn't. (laughs) The media coverage of these stories from right-wing media, and particularly One American News, to continue with the example, is that American democracy is on the edge. They've already stolen the election from Trump, and we must do whatever is necessary to save the republic. It's so maximalist so fatalistic. It drives up the temperatures, so to speak, on all of these issues of national import and doesn't leave any room for for error. And it's just very distressing to see that happening. We've been speaking with Bobby Lewis from Media Matters for America. They're online at mediamatters.org. Bobby Lewis, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me again.
And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, based in New York. If you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. We're engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.